I'd like to read this prayer for this morning. It says, O eternal, O God, eternal creator, who on the first day of creation called forth light out of darkness, who on the first day of the age to come brought life from the tomb, grant to us your Holy Spirit that the pure light of Easter morning might shine within our lives and make us children of light. For we pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord, who is himself the light of the world. Amen. This morning, I'd like to say that our, our big idea is that the res resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of God's new creation. And that anyone who puts their trust in Jesus is a new creation. The resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of God's new creation. This is a new creation where sin no longer separates us from God and no longer enslaves us. And death no longer has the last word. God is doing a new thing. And that's what John wants to give us this picture of in his gospel. And so he starts to describe these different scenes. If you look at John chapter 20, where he is doing this, first with Mary, Jesus comforts her and will wipe away her tears. This is what happens in God's new creation. Death no longer has the same place anymore because Jesus is risen. And John will frame this um, as a writer making these nods to different things that you can see. So one of the nods that he makes is in the very first verse of John chapter 1, where he says, early in the on the first day of the week while it was still dark. John is doing something intentional, especially for those who would know the, uh, the Old Testament and their Bible. John here is taking you back all the way to the very first pages of Genesis, Genesis 1, where God says, let there be light. And then when Mary mistakes Jesus for the gardener, it's this kind of hint towards something else, where God initially placed humanity in another garden, the Garden of Eden. Then there's this other scene, immediately following the one we, uh, Marcia just read, where Jesus appears to his disciples, and we're told in verse 19, on the first day of the week, he appears to them while they're hiding in this upper room, and he speaks peace to them, and then he gives them the Holy Spirit. And the way that Jesus does it is by breathing on them, just like the Spirit of God hovered over the waters before creation. God is doing a new thing, and John wants you to see it. And he'll even do this with those disciples who are so doubtful that even though some of the others are saying they've seen Jesus, they don't believe it. And he'll even do it with those who have screwed up so bad that they've flat out rejected they even know Jesus and have anything to do with him. And that's what we see in Thomas. Thomas is like this third scene. Jesus comes to Thomas who has said, unless I see Jesus with my own eyes and touch his wounds, I won't believe. I don't care if you, Peter, say you've seen him. If you guys, have, if Mary says you've seen it, she's seen him, I, don't, I won't believe it. So Jesus comes and challenges his doubts and puts an end to them. And then, in the last picture, it's with Peter. Jesus confronts Peter, but then he forgives Peter, and he gives him a new commission, a new calling. Each one of these disciples become resurrection people. The Bible calls these people new creations, and this is a picture that we get throughout the Gospel of John. And when you look at the new, uh, all of the events following the resurrection of Jesus in the four Gospels. See, anyone who puts their trust in Jesus, the Bible says, becomes a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old has gone, the new is here. 
What's the old? The old is that we were once slaves to sin and to death and to suffering without purpose. I heard about this story of a, a Christian uh, guy who had a terminal illness, and he loved the outdoors. He lived in the, uh, uh, the P&W out here. He loved it, and he loved to go camping, loved to go to the mountains, and he had a favorite spot that had this uh, gorgeous view of this mountain and uh, what was his favorite mountain and his favorite river. It was just a beautiful spot where he would often go camping. But as he sat there with this gorgeous view, he was also grieving. He was grieving and upset, thinking about how might, this might be one of the last times he would see it. How much, he was thinking about how much he would miss it, that view of that mountain, that river, being able to create memories there and just be present there. But then as he sat there, he thought, this thought came to him. Long after this mountain crumbles into dust, I will still be alive, for I am in Christ. Long after this river ceases to flow into the sea, I will still be alive in Christ. Long after the stars fall from the sky, I will still be vibrantly alive, for Christ has given me abundant and eternal life. On this story, Ben Witherington will say, the Christian faith does not deny the reality of disease or death, suffering or sorrow. It simply asserts that greater is the one who is in me than any of these worldly forces. One of the reasons why you and I need to be reminded that the resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of God's new creation, that anyone who puts their trust in Jesus is a new creation, is because many of us don't believe like this is, don't live like this is true. Maybe cognitively we would say, yeah, I agree with that, but we don't live like that, and so we act as if we are powerless to change our faults. We grieve as if there's no hope, and we suffer as if it were all meaningless. And in a sense, Mary is a great picture of this. When she walks to the tomb, she encounters an empty tomb, and she doesn't understand at first what it means. She was going to the tomb to mourn, to be near Jesus' dead body. She expects a dead body. She is grieving without hope, and she sees no meaning in her pain and even in this empty tomb. And I wonder if perhaps some of us, whether you believe or not, who are here, feel like there's doubts about whether or not the resurrection really happened. And I want to just speak to three common objections that people have to the resurrection. One is that the body of Jesus was stolen. He didn't really die, from the, he didn't really die and rise, uh, rise from the dead. It was just stolen, and that's how people started to believe in this. And this is one of the very uh, first accusations that the early Christians faced. In the first century, grave robbing was actually pretty common. It was so common, in fact, that uh, Emperor Claudius had to issue an edict banning the practice on pain of capital punishment. That's how common it was. People were doing this, especially for those who, had, uh, who were wealthy and could afford to ha- put nice things in their tomb. When Mary goes to the tomb and sees the tomb is empty, she immediately assumes that the grave has been robbed, including his body. Now, this way, the way this uh, theory shows up for those who doubt in the resurrection is two ways. One is the religious leaders took Jesus' body. The other is that the disciples did it. If the Jewish religious leaders stole Jesus' body, then as soon as this Easter message though, would have become popular, in particular in Jerusalem where this happened, they could have just rule, rolled Jesus' body out. So here he is. 
But the fact is that the, that the church in Jerusalem was actually sizable. It was large. And this wouldn't have been possible if the religious leaders had stolen Jesus' body. They just would have said, here he is, and totally undermined this message. The idea that the disciples stole Jesus' body doesn't really work either, though. And in one sense, it probably thinks way too highly of the intelligence of the disciples. And I don't mean in a way that diminishes who they are. It's just that the, the gospel writers, they don't portray the disciples very well. They all think Jesus is dead. One of the challenges that the disciples would have faced is that there would have been Roman guards set up around the tomb to stop anything like this from happening. But secondly, and most importantly, if they really had stolen Jesus' body, it would not be able to explain the kind of transformation that we see in the disciples, which is a total transformation. They go from cowards to being courageous heralds of Jesus' resurrection. If the disciples agreed to do this and then spread a lie, they would have had to have kept it a secret for decades, which isn't impossible, but it is very hard to do that with a, a number of people. But what about dying for a lie? People will die for truth. People sometimes even die thinking they have the truth. But who willingly dies for a lie? For something that they have made up. Some of the earliest followers of Jesus, the apostles, we know that a number of them were transformed from these cowards who were hiding and denying that they even knew Jesus to being killed because they refused to recant their belief in the resurrection of Jesus, including Jesus' own brother, James. This goes against human nature. What seems more convincing, that people died for a lie that they made up or that it actually happened because they saw him? A second objection, perhaps is more common, is that you just can't trust the gospel accounts. You can't trust them. But there's a number of reasons why we can actually look at these accounts of the resurrection of Jesus and, and see that they bear the marks of authenticity. One is that all the disciples are presented poorly. They're not, they're not, you don't see them in a good light. You see them in a negative light. None of them come out looking great. None were expecting Jesus to, die, to rise from the dead, expect, except that he had told them. Think about this. If John, Mark, Matthew, or Luke... We're trying to write a credible piece of fiction. And Jesus had told them that this would happen. Wouldn't you at least include one who was expecting it, who's going there looking for it? None of them did. None of them were anticipating this. This is why Mary is walking to the tomb. She's not expecting a resurrection. She's expecting to find a dead Jesus where she can mourn. She sees an empty tomb. She doesn't even think, oh, it could be that he is risen. She thinks someone's stolen his body. Peter runs to go check out the tomb. Same thing. He doesn't believe. He doesn't think that Jesus is risen. Even John, we're told, or the other disciple, we're told, enters and sees, and we're told he believes, but we're not really told what exactly he believes in. It's a limited belief, because right after that, we're told that they didn't understand that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And after this, their lives aren't even changed. They go back to hiding they go back to the upper room. It's as if not really much has happened. In Luke's gospel, when Mary goes and tells them that she has seen Jesus, we're told that they're skeptical of it. They don't really believe her. They think it's an idle tale. Even Thomas, like I mentioned, when he hears these multiple disciples talking about having seen Jesus, he refuses to believe in it. One of the reasons we can believe the gospel accounts is because they don't shy away from the embarrassing parts 
of the disciples. They are fearful, they're skeptical, they're slow to believe, they're even blind to Jesus. Another hallmark, though, of authenticity is that this really happened is that the first person Jesus appears to is Mary, a female. To you and I, we read that and we're like, we don't even think twice about it. But the fact is, this actually hurt the cause of Christianity in the first century. Mary witnessed this empty tomb. She sees angels and she sees the resurrected Jesus and it actually hurt the credibility of the Christian message for Jews and for Greeks who would hear it. During that time, the testimony of a woman wasn't even admissible. Women were marginalized and ignored. And a classic example of this is this Greek philosopher named Celsus who lived in the second century. He said he was so strongly opposed to Christianity and one of his reasons for it for rejecting it was that its written records of the resurrection came from women. Women were hysterical as far as he was concerned. And he wasn't this outlier. This seemed to be the uh, common way of, of treating and thinking of women at the time. And so if you were trying to write and craft this credible piece of fiction, wouldn't you want to use someone whose testimony would be seen as reliable? The gospel accounts are worthy of trust because they're not trying to present any of the disciples as expecting the resurrection. And they include information that actually hurts their cause. Let's look at the third one. Third objection is just that Jesus didn't really die. It was someone who went up there who appeared like him. And there are some uh, other religions that actually claim this, that it wasn't Jesus, it was someone who looked like him, who went up on the cross and died in his place. (coughs) Excuse me. You don't have to uh, even rely on the Gospels, though, to believe that Jesus died. Most historians agree that there was a man named Jesus who lived and walked in and around Palestine and was crucified under Pilate. Those three things, there's not very much debate amongst historians, secular or religious historians. There was a man named Jesus who lived and walked around Palestine. He was crucified under Pilate. You don't even have to go to their Gospels for that. In fact, there's actually more evidence that Jesus existed than there is for the Greek philosopher Plato. Almost nobody doubts Plato's existence on far less evidence. But we're talking about Jesus' death, not just his existence. And historians believe that there was this guy named Jesus who was crucified under Pilate. And one of the key reasons that they actually accept Jesus did die is that Romans were experts at killing. They were experts at killing people through crucifixion. uh, When Spartacus led this revolt of thousands of slaves against the Romans, the Romans didn't even send in their own army. They sent in these... um, these other forces, and all the slaves were defeated. And those who survived this initial battle were about 6,000 of them. And the Romans crucified all of them. If there was something the Romans were good at, it was killing people through crucifixion. The reality is everything changed when Jesus rose from the dead. Something about the way the universe went together changed when Jesus died and rose again. The very fabric of the universe changed in that moment. This is why Jesus is telling Mary she cannot hold on to him. It's not because he's heartless, doesn't care about her. That's not what he is doing. Jesus has to ascend to the Father. 
His ascension is the final step in Jesus changing the entire structure of the universe. Before Jesus' birth, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, the universe went together in one way. But after it, it went together in another way. And one of the ways you can think about this is uh, think, of, think of a web with strands that are all held together with sin, death, in this web. But because Jesus goes to the Father, the web changes. Sin in this web has a different place in the world. It has a different, the flesh has a different place. Evil, the principalities of powers, they all have a different place. Death has a different place. Jesus didn't simply do something to sin. He, he, didn't, he didn't just do something about sin. He did something to it. He didn't just do something about death. He did something to it. And as a result, we all now live in a universe that has changed. It's no longer the same. Those things exist. Sin exists. Suffering exists. Death exists. But they don't have the same power, the same authority. And the biblical picture that we get from this in the Gospels is Matthew telling us that the veil in the temple tore. The veil tore. It's this picture of everything changing. And the, new, the rest of the New Testament after the Gospels is basically people trying to make sense of what has happened and how we live in light of the resurrection. And this is how Paul will put it in Colossians 2. He says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the debt of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. When Jesus dies, something happens to death. Death has to let its captives free. When Jesus forgives our sin, sin has to release its grip on you. When Jesus triumphs over the powers and principalities by the cross, they are defeated, disarmed, and paraded around as losers. The imagery that Paul actually uses here is the image of a king who has won a war and now leads a procession of those whom he has defeated through the city. And the people are celebrating the victory that their king has brought them. See, Jesus does all of his work before this change in the structure of the universe. But we... His people will get to begin doing the work after this change. He's done his work in the old creation, but now he calls you and I, those of us who identify with Jesus, to perform his works in the new creation. And so how do we begin to do that? How do we begin to live in light of the resurrection? I want to just suggest uh, three things. One is we need to recognize Jesus. Recognize that he's calling you. Just as Jesus calls Mary by her name, he also calls you by name. See, an empty tomb is not enough to believe. It's not enough to believe. Mary didn't believe upon seeing an empty tomb. That wasn't good enough. She had to encounter Jesus. You have to encounter him. And Jesus ascending was about making that possible so that access to Jesus wasn't uh, you know, limited to a specific geographic location. But now by the Spirit, anyone can know Jesus and come to him. Jesus wanted Mary to see this new reality that he had ushered in. 
And the reason the angels and then Jesus are asking her, why are you weeping? Is because from the perspective of heaven, weeping for sorrow is the most backwards thing you can do at the empty tomb of Jesus. Mary's so full of sorrow over her loss that she cannot recognize the one she is looking for is right before her. She is not looking for a living Jesus. She is looking for a dead Jesus. And Jesus has to call her by name. He has to speak to her in such a way where she knows that voice. She's heard that very voice call her before. Mary recognizes Jesus in that moment. Her ears are like unplugged. Her eyes are open. Mary recognizes him and sees that he is alive. See, Jesus can speak to you through your own sorrow. Jesus says in John 10, my sheep know my voice, and the Spirit of God enables anyone, his sheep, to know his voice, to discern him calling them by name. Jesus calls you by name to know him, to become a new creation in him through faith. And the Bible uses this word believe, And more often than not, we kind of think of believe as like a mental agreement. Oh, yeah, I believe believe you. I agree with you that that's what happened or whatever. But we don't necessarily think about how it actually includes trust. Trust in the sense that you actually have to step out, reach out, lean on. You can trust him. And the amazing thing about Jesus is that he says he can work with trust as small as a tiny mustard seed. If you'll hear his voice and turn to him and see God's new creation, he invites you to actually become part of his new creation. The second thing you need to see is you need to realize Jesus makes you a herald. Jesus makes you a herald. It's only once you've encountered him that you can also be a herald for him. Jesus says to her, You know, don't cling to me. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary went to the disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord. And she told them he had said these things to her. Now you and I might feel like we cannot be heralds. And we'll come up with all different reasons why we can't be heralds. Uh, My past. I'm nervous when I talk to other people. I'm awkward, we'll say, you know, like... I don't know how to explain things. I don't feel like I'm the best example. We go through tons of different reasons why we feel like we can't be heralds. I don't even know what I would say. But by first century standards, Mary should be silent. Mary should be voiceless. Her testimony is not supposed to be admissible. Yet in God's new creation, not only do all disciples get access to Jesus, all of them become heralds of the good news of Jesus. Mary becomes what some have called the apostle to the apostles because she is the very first to see the risen Lord. And she goes to them and tells them, I have seen the Lord. God's new creation includes this whole new way of relating to not only God but to each other, not on the basis of your wealth, your status, your education, your gender, your marital status, your ability, but based on whether or not you belong to Jesus. That is the basis for being a herald. Mary goes from being voiceless to herald because she encountered the risen Lord. What made her that herald is that, just that, Jesus. It wasn't about her ability. It was simply about having encountered Jesus. And you and I get called to something similar. 
We are heralds of the resurrection. We are to be like we see in Mary and then afterwards in the disciples and then Thomas and Peter, resurrection people. Resurrection people. People who are both signs and agents of the new life that comes in Jesus. And T. Wright puts it, both signs and agents of the new life which will one day flood the whole creation. And the way that you and I do that is, yes, through our words, like sharing that he is risen, that he has changed our lives, but also by living in light of the resurrection. You live differently. You don't live the same way you used to. And believe it or not, one of the clearest ways we can do that is by being people who live with joy and who celebrate this reality every day. Some of you might be thinking, oh, like, the only way I do this is then by, like, submitting to Jesus. And, of course, that is part of it. But we fail to recognize that we should be a people who actually live with joy, that we can grieve with hope, and we live with this reality every day. N.T. Wright, he talks about how Easter should be this celebration, and he says it should be an eight-day festival with champagne served after morning prayer, or even before, he says, with lots of hallelujahs and extra hymns and spectacular anthems. And he says, is it any wonder people find it hard to believe in the resurrection of Jesus if we don't throw our hats up in the air? He'll talk about how we can spend 40 days practicing Lent, giving up all these things, grieving at our sin, but then we have one day to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. How is that appropriate, he says. That doesn't make sense. He says, is it any wonder we find it hard to live the resurrection if we don't do it exuberantly in our rhythms of worship? Is it any wonder the world doesn't take much notice if Easter is celebrated as simply the one-day happy ending, tacked on to 40 days of fasting and gloom? It's long overdue that we took a hard look at how we keep Easter in the church, at home, in our personal lives, right through the system. And if it means rethinking some cherished habits, well, maybe it's time to wake up. We must be a people who celebrate and live in light of the resurrection. And one of the best ways you can be a sign and an agent of God's new creation is by rejoicing or celebrating. So how do you celebrate? How do you celebrate the resurrection? Let me just tell you, it's a lot easier than you think. The regular things we do to express our joy and fill us to joy would be a great way to express that. I remember when I would, uh, I don't like writing very much. I don't like writing papers or anything like that. Whenever I'd finish my final papers when I was doing my undergrad, I would it'd probably be like three in the morning and I would be dancing. And it would dance by myself, but it was just the joy of having completed something that for me felt very painful. And now I could go to sleep. I would rejoice. That was me celebrating. We dance. We can dance because he is risen. George Herbert says, Death used to be an ex executioner, but the gospel makes him just a gardener. Death used to be able to crush us, but now all death can do is plant us in God's soil, so we become something extraordinary. When I'd finish a long day painting, maybe nine, ten hours, <clears throat> and I would work uh, with my friend Kenny, we'd carpool home, and we would just play Coldplay, and we would belt, like, crank it up, and we would belt it, and it sounds really cheesy, but we would be celebrating that 
the day of work was over and we were driving home. You see, we can sing and rejoice in what Jesus has done. And these simple things like singing, like dancing, like laughing. I have one uncle who, he's just the best storyteller. And every time we get together with him, everyone laughs. He just has this way about telling stories that makes everyone just relax and have a great time. We can celebrate by telling the stories that Jesus has done in our lives and the lives of other people. We can celebrate by being people who are generous. Generous with what God has given us, our time, our our resources, to bless other people because God has actually been generous with us. These are all different ways. But one of the ways that we must see is that we don't just do it as individuals. We do it as a community, as a people of God. And so one thing you can do this week, even today, after the service, is to go out together as a community and celebrate that he is risen. Eat good food. If you drink champagne, drink some champagne. Cheers to the resurrection of Jesus. We're to be a people who rejoice in what has happened, that the fabric of the universe has changed forever. And that we get to be invited into his new creation. See, when we become people who celebrate, even in these little ways like singing or dancing or telling stories or laughing, you and I proclaim that he really is risen. That you know the risen Lord and that he knows you. And at 